to the whole commissions committee for all the work that y'all are doing behind the scenes, organizing our, our missions efforts. Um, and thank you to all of you for your generous support. It's, just, it's so encouraging to me personally, as I sit there and watch this video, to see ways that our generosity as a church are going to affect the lives of people all around the world, whether that's supporting our missionaries in Togo, Chad, India, Jamaica, or now this Bible translation project to the Akebu people. Um, thank you for your support in that and for your generosity. Uh, I'm Ryan, one of the pastors. It's great to get to preach the word this morning. Uh, we are looking at Matthew 5, 17 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, encourage you to open up, follow along, and also be up here on the screen uh, so you can follow along up there. And we will, I know you just sat down a few minutes ago. We've had some up and down. We're going to stand up again real quick for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> if you're physically able to, please stand. And after the reading, again, I'll say this is uh, the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God, right? Okay, Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can sit here and hear from you and worship you in response. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would remove any distractions. Father, that you would cut to our hearts and speak to us clearly. Lord, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. And Lord, that you would stir us to faith and to obedience. Would you bring transformation in our lives and in our church and in the city? We ask me your Holy Spirit be powerfully at work this morning and help us to listen and to obey. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. Uh, well, history could be defined by, maybe demarcated by paradigm shifts, you know, where a new way of thinking or living kind of eclipses a former order of things, right? And so examples of these kind of abound throughout history. This could be Copernicus's teaching that the planets revolve around the sun rather than, you know, everything revolving around the earth. Newton's discovery of, of gravity. Alexander Fleming's discovery of accidental discovery of penicillin. Or our generation's creation of the toaster strudel. That glorious frozen breakfast pastry that warmed our belly. I don't know, in high school this was me. And warmed, warmed my belly and prepared teenagers across the U.S. for a glorious mid-morning carb crash. <clears throat> what better way to start your day than with a toaster strudel, right? So uh, these events, most of them anyways, fundamentally changed 
our understanding of the world and altered the course of history. Uh, as Christians, we believe that Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection introduced the greatest paradigm shift that the world has ever seen. And so in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we are unpacking some of these foundational principles of the way of Jesus. And this passage that we've come to this morning brings us to a key turning point, not only in the book of Matthew, but in the sermon. And we see here that Jesus came to reveal a way of life that is unimaginably great, but that's unbelievably costly. It's unimaginably great, but it's unbelievably costly. And this morning, I'd like to consider a couple of aspects of that reality, the fulfillment of God's plan, how Jesus fulfills God's plan here, and the entrance to God's kingdom. So we'll start with the, the fulfillment of God's plan. You know, there, there are numerous themes in the gospel of Matthew, but a couple of themes really stand out immediately as you start reading through uh, this book. The theme of the kingdom and the theme of fulfillment. So Jesus began his ministry with a simple but profound proclamation. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew records these words as Jesus' very first in his ministry, just after he was baptized by John and then endured temptation in the wilderness. The very first declaration of his ministry is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Shortly thereafter, Matthew records this Sermon on the Mount, the central message of the book and the longest single teaching that we have uh, of Jesus that's recorded. And it is an explanation of kingdom life. As Chippers explained really well in the last few weeks, the Beatitudes in the beginning of this sermon are not only the, the ethics of and the promises to one who follows Jesus, but their description of the fullness of the life as God, of the fullness of life as God intends in his kingdom. And so we see this theme of, of kingdom over and over and over again throughout the book. The second theme that stands out here is fulfillment, runs throughout the book. From the opening chapter of the announcement, of course, of the birth of Christ all the way to Jesus' betrayal and his crucifixion, Matthew cites over and over and over again that these events took place or Jesus taught something or, or whatever that in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And now here in Matthew 5, you see these two themes intersect in a, in a substantial way. But they don't only intersect. This is, this is the, a key passage. It is, is pivotal to the whole sermon and understanding the whole sermon. And so we want to make sure to unpack this as best we can, right? So we see that he begins here, Jesus begins by stating his intentions about fulfillment. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, in that day, the expression, the law and the prophets, or sometimes maybe the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Tanakh, as it would be uh, abbreviated, 
was used to refer to the entire established Jewish canon. So sometimes it was, it was law, sometimes the law and the prophets, sometimes the law, prophets, the writings, but all of it just means it's a reference to the whole Old Testament canon. And the intention is the entire canon, not only the prophetic books, like some, something, a specific prophecy or a specific legal or ethical matter in the Pentateuch. It's the, the whole of the canon. And Jesus is clear, uh, cr- uh, crucially clear about his purpose here, that he has no intention of abolishing the truth that is revealed in the Old Testament. He didn't come to cancel it. He didn't come to negate it. He wouldn't be rejecting it or denying any part of God's revelation. Rather, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, that word opens a whole can of worms. As I combed through commentary after commentary after commentary, this uh, week, I discovered that much ink has been spilled and much debate has been had throughout church history over just how, exactly how, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. There's nothing close to approaching consensus on this, so I get the great task of getting to explain it to you all, which is fun. Uh, What does Jesus mean exactly when he says that he fulfills the law and the prophets? Well, There's lots of ways it can be interpreted, but I want to avoid getting into the weeds of particularities this morning in an effort to maintain concision and clarity and most of all, your consciousness. Uh, I'll simply say this, as best I understand this. Often, fulfillment gets loaded with a particular nuance, a particular way that we we read meaning into this word. So it's maybe realizing a prediction Like there were some event or circumstances that was foretold in the past that now comes to pass. Or it's obeying a requirement that Jesus perfectly obeyed some command in the law or all of the commands in the law. Or satisfying a sacrifice, as in fulfilling the sacrificial system. Or mirroring some type. That is, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Moses. He's the true and better David. And the truth is that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in all of those ways. All of those things are valid and true. But while including those, the fulfillment that Jesus references here is not limited to any one of them or even all of those examples combined. He actually has something more in view here. Jesus is saying that he did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but instead to complete them. He came to complete them. One commentator quoted uh, a bishop as saying, describing it like this, in the Old Testament is the gospel in the form of a bud. And in the New Testament, we see the gospel in full flower. It has blossomed. It has unfolded. It is completed. What God began to do in and through Abraham, through Jacob, through the Mosaic Covenant, through Israel, through David, through the temple, through the prophets, even through the exile, all of this was pointing towards the moment, towards this moment, when Jesus would come and be the pinnacle of God's revelation. In other words, Jesus is saying that he has come to bring a kingdom that is the completion of God's 
redemptive plan. It is the fullest manifestation of God's work to reconcile and redeem and renew his creation. And of course, we can't help but think about the Emmaus Road, right? The Messiah, the resurrected Messiah appears before two, two of his disciples as they're walking along the road and they don't recognize him. They start inquiring about the events of late, the crucifixion of their leader, their, who they believed was their savior. And Jesus says to them, he cuts through and, and provides this clarity and explanation. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, the ways in which we can think about how to apply this to our lives are numerous, right? I mean, in what way does Christ's fulfillment not intersect with our life? But I just want to think about one for the, uh, for the sake of time this morning, and that's simply this, that the care which Jesus takes to connect his work to the work of God throughout history should remind and encourage us that every part of God's redemptive work plays a role. God has worked through people whose names we know and through many more whose names we do not. He's worked through those who authored whole books of the scriptures and those who only appear in one passing verse. He's worked through times of great prosperity and peace and he's worked through times of famine and war. He's worked through seasons of clarity, and he's worked through periods of extraordinary darkness. He's worked when his people were free, and he has worked when his people were oppressed. Through every season, God is steadfast, unmovable, enduring, faithful, and true. And every part of God's redemptive work is important whether we understand how it fits together or not right now on this side of eternity. Every point in history, every generation, every country, every people group, every culture, every institution, every church, every family, every life. I think about a, the, a picture from a pastor uh, of a massive tapestry. You know, when you look at the back, of a tapestry. You get a rug in the mail, uh, maybe not one of the machined ones, but one of the fancy ones, right? That's hand-woven. And when you unroll it on the back, you just see colors everywhere. It just looks like a mess. There's no, there seems to be no rhyme, no reason, no pattern. You don't understand why there's blue here and then there, and it's cutting across this way and that. And yet then you turn the tapestry over, and you see the beautiful design of the artist. You see the, the pattern that they were weaving. You see the intent of their creation. You see how it all goes together. On the back side, you, this side of eternity, we don't understand how everything fits together, right? 
But we know that there is an artist, an artisan, who is weaving all of this together for his glory. And it fits together beautifully. Every part is woven together in the fabric of God's story, and that includes your life. You play a role in God's story of redemption. God has made you unique. The calling he has for you is valuable, and the gifts that he has given you are important, not only for you, but for all of those around you. And so when you feel discouraged, or you feel hopeless, or you feel ineffective, remember the purpose for which Christ came into this world, to reconcile, to redeem, and to renew his creation in the fullness of time that we now live. To reconcile, redeem, and renew you in the fullness of time. In Christ, he is at work in you and through you, and so be encouraged. So we see that Christ is bringing this life through fulfillment of all of God's redemptive work throughout history. But I want to turn and spend a little bit more time considering how this life is received. How do we enter in to that? We see, secondly here, the entrance to God's kingdom. Uh, Here in these verses, Jesus teaches his disciples one essential qualification to enter his kingdom. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, of course, as you may be familiar, were some of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. They were known for their scrupulous adherence to the law. Jesus condemns them later in the Gospel of Matthew for how meticulously they, they're, they're careful to tithe even a tenth of their spices, right? And yet they neglect some of the weightier matters of the law, which we'll get into in just a second here. Now, Jesus tells his followers that the only way to gain admission to the kingdom of heaven is to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. To be more righteous to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. So even to a devout first century Jew hearing this, this expectation would have been staggering. Can you imagine how demoralized they must have felt, the disciples must have felt when they heard this, the realization of the impossibility of this task sunk in? You know, it would be like asking me to going out golfing with me and asking me to hit a hole-in-one on a course. Uh, You know, on maybe my best day, I would make contact with the ball, and it may, (laughs) Chipper's laughing, it may, (laughs) he's golfed with me, it may land in the rough, maybe like 80 yards down, Uh, but that is the peak of my performance in golf, for sure. And, you know, many of you here are now saying, well, I'm never going golfing with him. And I just have to say, yeah, that's wise of you. You should not do that. Uh, it's, not, it's not just like hitting a hole-in-one one time out of luck. It's like any of us being told to go out golfing and hit a hole on every hole, all 18 holes-in-one. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. 
And you can just imagine how, even, even to the best, right, even to Tiger Woods, this is impossible. But you can imagine how this realization would wash over his disciples as they hear this. How is our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees who are the most devout, the most consistent, the most focused on abiding by the laws of the Torah? Well, in an attempt to reconcile this with New Testament teaching of grace and mercy, many have tried to interpret this passage in a way that alleviates the pain. So some argue that Jesus is intentionally setting the bar so high that everyone is aware of their inability to reach it and therefore their need for him, right? Well, this is true as far as it goes, but it would make Jesus out to be saying the exact opposite of what he said. In effect, your righteousness must exceed what in practice become your righteousness must not exceed. And we should, of course, be weary of doing that. Others jump, well-meaning, jump to a Pauline passage, you know, Romans or Ephesians, and, and take an otherwise very valid doctrine of Christ's imputed righteousness and apply it here. And yet the immediate context of this command is actually a call to obedience, to radical obedience. He says that, if you recall, those who relax even the least commandment will be called least, and those who do the greatest commandments will be called greatest. And so trying to impose this theological construct would not really fit on the context of what Jesus is saying here or what Matthew's reporting. And so while neither of these takes is completely wrong per se, we are, after all, completely dependent on God's grace and his righteousness for our salvation. They are not the point here in this text. So what does Jesus mean? What kind of righteousness is Jesus calling us to? And I believe the answer is this. Jesus is not saying that entering the kingdom of heaven is contingent on more righteousness than the Pharisees, that is, being more scrupulous in our keeping of the rules. Rather, Jesus is saying that entering his kingdom requires a deeper righteousness. In other words, the greater righteousness is not a greater quantity, but a, a greater and different quality. And this is evident by the instructions that immediately follow in this. In the following section on, in the sermon, Jesus exegetes six matters of the law. He looks at murder, adultery, marriage, oaths, revenge, and love for others. And we'll be looking at each of those individually in the coming weeks. But he couches each of those examples as, you have heard it said, but I say to you. For example, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. So in each case, he does that with each case. In each case, what he's doing is he's applying the law in a deeper way, in a more penetrating way. The righteousness that is required is not merely one of outward conformity to a set of rules. It's not merely right behavior. The righteousness that is required for the kingdom of God has to go all the way down to the very core of our being. 
We need a righteousness that goes all the way down to our hearts and that, in fact, overflows out of that. So what do we do with that? As modern people, what do we tend to do when we hear about this kind of uh, expectation? Well, we tend to reject it, one of a few things. We We reject it. Maybe we write this off as unrealistic, overzealous strictures, you know, religious strictures. We ignore it. We look for a way to explain away our guilt, justify our dissonance, kind of remain in control. We misunderstand it. We think that by modifying our behavior or doing enough activities, we can accomplish what Jesus expects here. So we double down on books and podcasts and reading plans and group studies and all of those things are good, right? But if they're done with the wrong motives, they just serve to accelerate the speed the speed at which we crash our ship into the rocks. So we reject it, ignored it, misunderstand it, or we despair. We despair over it. We see the cost here. We see the impossibility of what's expected, and we throw up our hands in defeat. But not only are all those responses incorrect, by tragically missing the power of what Jesus is commanding, they completely lose the beauty of what Jesus is offering. Jesus wants us to feel the full force of his point here. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who possess a far greater, far deeper righteousness than that of even the most stringent religious folks to walk the face of this earth. To enter God's kingdom, you need a greater righteousness that not only includes obedience, it includes the heart. And Jesus tells us in the strongest possible terms that without that greater righteousness of the heart, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is his entire point. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those whose hearts are fully his. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who belong completely to its king. There can be nothing held back, no part of our life restricted, no closet door locked, no secret indulged, no stone unturned. Every part of us must belong wholly to him. If you're to enter his kingdom, he must be your king. But the beauty of is revealed in this. The pressure of this requirement gives way when we see the beauty of what is on offer. It is not only that he must be our king, but that we get him as our king. We get him. We get him freely. We never have to earn our way in. Indeed, we can't. We only accept his gracious invitation. And we get him now and forever, the author and source of life itself. As John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. When we receive him, we receive not only a new life personally, but we enter into the domain of everlasting life. We reside in his kingdom where he reigns. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those whose hearts are fully his.
you know, this year we're, we're talking about transformation. And as I wrestled through this passage, pa- passage this week, I f- personally just felt so convicted of my own need for greater and deeper transformation in this area, for a wholeness, not just of life and rhythms and, and practice, not just allegiance to Christ with my words, not just commitment in my actions, but a heart that is devoted fully to Christ, to turn over every stone, to give every area to him. And my prayer for our church is that that would be true of us this year, that we would not shy away from the discomfort of this proposition that the kingdom of heaven belongs only to those whose hearts are fully his. That we would not shy away, that we would not ignore that reality, that we would not make excuses or look for ways to justify ourselves, that we would not despair in hopelessness, but instead that each one of us would feel the full weight of Jesus' words, that we would sit in that pain and discomfort and that fear in those words of Jesus that are meant to make our blood run cold. And that we would respond to him simply by saying, may it be so in my life. May we cast off every distortion of self-righteousness and self-justification that we are so good at manufacturing. And I pray that each one of us would experience the life and the freedom that come in full surrender to Christ as our King. What do you need to surrender to Christ? As I talk about this right now, what comes to your mind immediately? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to repent of? Who do you need to forgive? What do you need to trust him with? Jesus extends to you this morning a life that is unimaginably great, but it's unbelievably costly. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. May we lose our lives to receive the greater righteousness, a heart fully devoted to him, the life that is truly life. Amen.